This is the Epilog Audio Experience. The language and content on this podcast may be unsuitable for certain audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to History Chatter. This is August 2023 and um, I fondly remember when we started three years ago this podcast and off we went with the first episode about what it means to be an Indian and that I hope and I believe generated sufficient interest over the years over several other episodes and you've stayed with me so I must begin with thanking you dear audience friends over the years who've stayed with us with history chatter and I hope all of us all of you will stay with us in the coming months and years hopefully we're soon going to touch 100 episodes we'll have plenty of discussions about those going ahead but this month August 2023 we celebrate as usual as the freedom month of our country and this year we've chosen to observe it with a special four episode series on the integration of princely states to the Republic of India. How do we begin? We must remember that before there was India and Pakistan and Bangladesh, there were 565 princely states and uh, On the eve of India and Pakistan's independence and partition, the British government announced what they called the lapse of paramountcy. Paramountcy was uh, the omnibus legal juridical term which governed the relationship of the British crown with the princely states. I'll have more to say about it going ahead into the episode. But for the moment, let us understand and remember that that decision was made solely with um, a mischief, an intention really to create and produce chaos on the moment of uh, India's independence. And I'll shortly explain how. India of course, had to guard itself against the impending chaos. And it had a dying need, really, to protect and preserve the unity and integrity of the country. One of the ways it had to be done was through the integration of the princely states. Princely states, therefore, constituted a most important aspect of the story of India's integration, a story that has started to come to light in more detail only during the recent years. Yet, the integration of princely states is, even today, the least discussed issue in the history of modern and contemporary India. This is probably because uh, The story fits neither of the two popular narratives about independence, partition, or the making of contemporary India. 
it cannot be shown as a consequence of a series of valiant fights and agitations and movements by patriotic nationalists. It cannot be shown as a story wrapped in profound, monstrous tragedy or loss. But this is a story that has to be told nonetheless. It has to be known. There are two basic reasons, really. There are many reasons, but let me come up with these two, which seem most uh, profound and also the easiest to follow. The total territory of the princely states adds up to about one-third of the area which make up India today. Second, two of the largest states or provinces in India today, Rajasthan and Madhya Pradesh, are made up entirely of former princely states. Now, try to imagine India without Rajasthan, without Madhya Pradesh, and without one-third of its size you will know immediately why we should know everything that we can about the princely states. So that's our Freedom Month series. This year, this week, and the next three weeks are going to focus on the integration of princely states. Now, have you heard ever of something called a princestan. You haven't, right? So there's this book, journalist Sandeep Bamzai, a senior journalist, published a book in 2020. It was called Princestan. Bamzai claims that uh, the Nawab of Bhopal and also Holkar the Diwan of uh, Travancore, C.P. Ramaswamy Iyer, you would have heard about Iyer in a previous series in Atomic India, and Ramachandra Kak, the Prime Minister of Kashmir, uh, together forged a team of conspirators to somehow defy the Congress and maintain the independence of princely states. Now, the Nawab of Bhopal, Hamidullah, was the Chancellor of the Chamber of Princes at the time. The Chamber of Princes was uh, some kind of uh, a legislature, really, not a legislature, but a consultative body where the Princes of India met to um, share their interests and come together on some kind of a common platform uh, interacting and putting their points of view together through to the crowd. It was a deliberative chamber of the Indian princes which was created in 1921. And this conspiracy to maintain their independence was indulged, indeed stoked and uh, nurtured, if you like, by Sir Conrad Corfin who was a civil servant between 1945 and 47, Corfield occupied the influential position of the political advisor to the Crown representative 
in India or the Viceroy of India. Now, these princes had thought up a confederation of princely states, which would be um, in status on par with India and Pakistan. Bamzai uh, called this idea of a princely confederation Princesta. So you will remember that uh, princely states were featured at least twice in history chatter. Once I spoke about an occasion in Bombay during the 1950s when some crockery which belonged to the household of the former king of Kashmir was put up for auction. More recently, I devoted half an episode, a fairly large half, to the secret thorium diplomacy of the Travancore state, where you heard for the first time about Ramaswamy Iyer. Now, let's turn to the, the prospects uh, of Prince Stan. Was it really a feasible idea? Now, nobody really fancied that idea except some of these princes. Now, please remember, not all of them liked it. Not really. In fact, some of them actively resisted it, and I'll come to that in a moment. One of the few redeeming aspects of the British Raj uh, was indeed the consolidation of the nation and the prominence of the nationalist leaders. Um, talking of nationalist leaders, the Prime Minister, he was already Prime Minister, the interim Prime Minister, Jawaharlal Nehru, was not at all ready to accommodate these states in his vision for India's future. Nehru believed that all princes were invariably tyrants and unapologetic slaves of the British Empire. Now, treaties of paramountcy would not count for much uh, once the British left. He virtually said in 1939, in 1945, in the Udaipur session of the All India States People's Conference, Nehru said that princely states were mirror images of British imperialists. In the Gwalior session of uh, States People's Conference in 1947, he said that states refusing to join the Constituent Assembly would be treated as hostile parts. Earlier, in 1923, Nehru had a bitter experience in the princely state of Nabha in Punjab. He was arrested and uh, he was sentenced later to two years in jail, allegedly for supporting an Akali Dal agitation against the incumbent ruler. This was part of um, a controversy, a dispute in succession, the details of which we need not get into at this stage. The sentence, the two years prison sentence, was uh, suspended and he was ordered never again to return. One of his associates, who did return later, was immediately arrested. Nehru was advised by his well-wishers, including Mahatma Gandhi, never to visit Nabha. And he never did, until 1947, that is. Nehru himself regretted in his autobiography his lack of 
courage in this instance. 23 years later, in 1946, he would defy once again such a royal order and enter Farid court. He was explicitly barred from entering Nabha in 1923. He defied that order and was arrested and given a sentence. But in 1943, he would defy a similar order and enter Farid court. There, in Farid court, Nehru led a large popular procession and forced the ruler to back down. But 23 years, you remember, had passed in between these two events. Now, the rulers, the rulers of princely state, uh, or the so-called royals, were born, or they thought they were born, to rule as if it was their birthright. This is a legacy, of course, which goes back millennium in India, but it had been dressed up in a new garb by the British rule. That's a longer story, and we will revisit bits and pieces of that story along the way. Fortunately or unfortunately, in 1946 and 47, times had clearly changed. It was time for Nehru to hit back at the princes. Nehru boldly went to Kashmir when King Hari Singh imprisoned Sheikh Abdullah. Sheikh Abdullah had taken on the king's oppressive rule. Nehru was arrested again and was made to leave like he had to do in Nabha. Returning to Delhi, he spoke strongly against princely states in 1946, but still only on return to Delhi, but not inside Kashmir. So you clearly understand that Jawaharlal Nehru had um, undergone a number of bitter experiences of retreat against the rampaging power of the princely states till as late as 1946. There was no surprise, therefore, that he would be up in arms, metaphorically speaking, against these princely states. In fact, Jawaharlal Nehru almost single-handedly engineered the public revulsion against the native princes. He condemned them as entitled autocrats and habitual tyrants addicted to extravagant luxuries who deserve no mercy or support. At every available opportunity, he fumed at them, letting them know that he despised them. It was clear that he would stop at nothing short of their total integration in India at any cost. But of course, every action has a reaction. By 1945, Nehru had been looking for some sort of a theory, a legitimate juristical position which will justify the integration of princely states. Meanwhile, the princes too had been preparing for the post-war world order, which in some way made it uh, imperative for a republican government to come in. They knew, I mean, that there would be elections and there would be a greater role for the people 
in any post-war settlement. In any case, a majority of these 565 states were too small in size. The smallest of them collected or um, were given 20 rupees uh, for annual revenue and would have only 12 subjects. Imagine that, 20 rupees per year of income and 12 subjects and there is still a king. In any case, only 30 had both the size and the population comparable to roughly a district. The British classified them in terms of gun salutes, which varied according to their size and dignity. But there were only 20 salute states or the states which received gun salutes. 400 of them were so small they did not deserve salutes. Another method to classify them was according to the treaties each of them signed with the British government. But only 40 or so had signed such treaties. The rest of these states emerged on the basis of sanads uh, and conventions. Each of these agreements, in other words, implicitly or explicitly provided for the general understanding that these rulers must rule their states in a good and orderly fashion for them to retain British military support and protection. Then uh, there were the first division and second division states. The second division states were divided into two groups. Uh, the first group enjoyed considerable authority to make laws and exercise judicial powers. The second division states were subdivided on the extent to which they were free to make laws. So by 1858, when the British monarchy finally took over India, they evolved something called paramountcy. The concept of paramountcy was retrospectively invented, if you like, or conceptualized or coined to govern these um, hundreds of individualized political arrangements with Indian rulers. Nehru wanted these treaties to be rejected by the people of these states at once, since these treaties were not signed under the name of the people. In 1921, after the Montague Chelmsford reforms, there was something called a Chamber of Princes, to which I referred earlier. Chamber of Princes was a kind of parliament of native rulers. Not exactly, though. There, in the Chamber of Princes, they were expected to exchange opinions, which in turn were um, to safeguard interests common to the states and British India which led eventually, or which were intended to lead eventually, to a growing identity of interests between these states and the Raj. Quite a few princes were worried, in fact, when the chamber was created, that all princes there would be treated equally. They were 
conscious, terribly conscious about their size, prestige, dignity, and so on and so forth. In any case, none of them had any sovereign status. They did not have the authority to negotiate with foreign countries on their own. They were not free even to choose their ministers without formal approval from the British authorities. But they were not worried about those uh, reductions or diminutions of their authority. Their main concern was simple, coming into 1946. They had signed or entered into an agreement with the paramount power, that is, the British Empire. Paramount power broadly meant the authority to more or less supersede these princes and to tell them what to do. If the sovereign authority were handed over, this paramountcy, in other words, were handed over to an Indian legislature, what would happen to the princes and their states? There was nothing in their agreements with the British Raj that guaranteed the survival of these states beyond the survival of the British colonial state or the Raj. So, they were quite worried by the end of 1946, these princes. On 20th of February 1947, the British Prime Minister Clement Attlee told the Parliament that the British were going to withdraw all government officials and military forces from India, latest by June 1948. When the Raja of Bhopal, Hamidullah, called on Viceroy Mountbatten shortly after this announcement, Mountbatten refused to offer any assurances. Now, Hamidullah, or these princes, um, had been banking on a, a statement by the cabinet mission in May 1946, which appeared to leave some legal room for the princely states. But the princes' native states were a bulwark against the Congress-laid nationalism for the empire. Now, when there was no need to resist or to suspend or to neutralize the Congress or the nationalist mainstream, the company, the Raj, the British monarch, had absolutely no need for these princes. Moreover, many of these princes were addicted to extravagance and exhibitionism. Sandeep Bamzai, in fact, wrote an entire chapter which collected excerpts from Jan Copeland's Endgame of Empire with details about uh, these extravagances, these, um, this show-off, uh, this exhibitionism of these princes and the kind of money that they blew up. You'd be happy um, some of these uh, interests and exhibition. Some of these examples are really gross, by the way, which is why I'm not getting into them. But there were exceptions. Maharaja Ganga Singh of Bekaner was an exception to this rule. 
Sir Sadul Singh, uh, the son and successor of Maharaja Ganga Singh of Bikaner, wrote a white paper of sorts and uh, presented it in detail, um, the various options for princely states. Uh, it was called the time for right decision, an appeal to the princess. The essential argument of Sadhul Singh in that white paper was that the princess should strengthen the hands of uh, those busy making a constitution or else it will lead to instability in the whole country and the left radicals will run amok. So he was essentially raising a boggy of leftist revolution asking the princes to strengthen the hands of the Congress. The document, uh, the white paper of Sadhul Singh, purportedly resisted the idea of this Princestan idea, that is, which was encouraged by Jinnah and Conrad Caulfield. They were asked, encouraged indeed these princes, to hold out. Jawaharlal Nehru, meanwhile, had invited the princes to join two committees of the Constituent Assembly, including the Committee of Fundamental Rights. And yet, these princes were still holding out. And they were led by the Vopal, uh, the Raja of Vopal Hamidullah, who chaired the Chamber of Princes. By uh, 1st of April 1947, Bikaner and Patiala were getting ready to join India. But Bhopal resolved to hold out yet. The division, ironically, the division among the princes of India now ran the risk of opening up along communal lines. Meanwhile, Conrad Horfield, the political advisor to the Viceroy, encouraged the princes to build a confederacy. Uh, and approached the Secretary of State in England. He bypassed uh, the Viceroy in the process. Now, Sandeep Bamzai claims that uh, the Secretary of State was sympathetic, listwell, that is. The objective was to keep this confederacy forever as a bulwark of loyalty to the British Empire. Now, Corfield persuaded Listwell the Secretary of State for India, to add the clause, a particular clause, in Indian Independence Bill. What was that clause? Simple enough. The clause was that the paramountcy would lapse only on August 15, 1947, not before that. Now, there was a hope for Corfield and probably also for Listwell that India would have to face, a newly independent India would have to face these 560 plus independent states, that these states for the time being would become independent authorities themselves. And it would be a sure shot recipe for chaos and disorder. In early June, Corfield up did something audacious without asking anyone, not even the Viceroy, or consulting him. He had destroyed some four tons of private papers, official 
papers of the private exploits, um, various treaties and other correspondence with the states. The Viceroy was kept completely in the dark. Corfield was determined that no such paper should reach the nationalist leaders. Now, there was, a, there was a chance, of course, that these papers could be used to embarrass the princes into submission or into joining uh, the new independent Indian state. The state's department, this was in fact the time, June 1947, when the shenanigans of, of Corfield came out into the public and the Viceroy was upset with him, this was the time when the state's department would be created. Only after a meeting in June 13, uh, 1947, in this meeting, both Jinnah and Nehru took Conrad Corfield to task and Mountbatten did not come to his defense. So by June uh, the 3rd of 1947, Mountbatten announced the date, the schedule, or the final transfer of Lard plan. The Chamber of Princes stood defunct for all practical purposes after this announcement. The Raja of Bhopal, now beside himself in rage, immediately resigned from his position as the chairman of the princely state's chamber. The Princistan plan did not come to much, but this set the stage perfectly for the eventual integration of the princely states to the Indian Republic. By June, the Chamber of Princes was defunct for all practical purposes Jawaharlal Nehru was irreplicably opposed to the survival of princely states. Those princes who had been holding out did not have a leg really to stand on. And by June also was formed the most powerful team in uh, the state's department of the interim administration of India. Ballabhai Patel would take charge of the state's department and he would have an excellent and most efficient deputy in VP Menon, uh, the highest ranked Indian official in the empire. Menon and Patel were now ready to shepherd the process of the integration of princely states to the Indian Republic. This is the story that I'm going to tell you over the next three episodes this month. India United, this four-part series in history chatter on the Indian um, story of integration of princes to the Indian Republic in this um, Independence Month, Freedom Month, August 2023 in History Chatter. I look forward to talking more, to gradually unraveling the reigning drama of the integration of princely states to the Republic of India through the next three episodes. Do stay with us. I'll be back next week. Bye-bye.